Well, hello, everybody. We're going to start. Do you guys say a prayer or something? Or Oh, it's, is it pre-prayed? Pre-prayed? Okay. Well, hello, Father Brett. So this is preaching workshop number two. So I'm building off what the bishop did last week, which was really fantastic. He did a really fantastic job. So what? I am going to follow it, okay? <laughs> because here I am. I'm following it. Will I follow it well or poorly? That remains to be seen. So, but I am going to follow it. Wow, those flakes are big. Um, so... Yeah, that was really fantastic. So I've been around the preaching world for a long time. So I've been preaching for 27 years. Um, I've been working at Preaching Today for almost 10 years. Um, I was there full-time for four years. And then uh, I'm still there part-time. I still work there six hours a week, which is part of Christianity Today. And I, one of the reasons why I'm there is because I just learn so much all the time. So um, I'm like constantly learning and just learning from different preachers and learning different things about preaching. So I just find preaching so utterly fascinating. Um, as a form of communication, there's like nothing like it. I mean, maybe a public speech, but that's still not the same. Um, it's just there's nothing that combines like your, your own soul, uh, your perspective, storytelling, but you're trying to explain an ancient text that was written two or 3,000 years ago. You're trying to bring it into contemporary life today. Um, you're trying to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's just so much going on that's just so fun. Um, and there's so much to learn. And um, I just learned, like recently I've been learning um, a lot from uh, African-American preachers, not that I want to try to be one because I can't, but there's just certain things they do and emphases that they have that's really fascinating um, to me. So anyway, I love preaching. So um, somebody asked uh, yesterday, what would you do, what can you not not do in your life? And I thought, well, I don't have to preach all the time, but I want to be around preaching. Uh, that's one of the things I want to do with my whole life, just learning about it, coaching other people. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Um, so you get the point? I like preaching. Is that coming through? Okay, so um, let's talk about, so I want to, I'm going to do a smattering of things. I'm going to do something that you should not do in preaching, okay? I'm going to give you a smattering of things, all right? Um, and you should not do that. So just do as I say, not as I do when it comes to preaching. But first of all, I just wanted, I wanted to start with a few things about you as the preacher, the preacher's soul. So I have a handout. So go ahead, pass those around. <clears throat> I want to talk about three myths of preaching, or maybe we should say three myths of the preacher. Then I'm going to go over again some of the stuff that the bishop talked about and just quickly give my perspective on that. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at two case studies of sermons. Not the whole thing, but snippets of the sermon. And you guys are going to, we're going to discover together what these preachers did right or wrong. 
Okay? So, first three myths about the, about the preacher, maybe that's a better way to say that. So, the three myths that I want to talk about is you should not be nervous or afraid. Uh, you must be an Bible, expert Bible scholar, and you are incredibly important. Um, so I'll, those are all myths, not myths in the sense of Lewis, Tolkien, mythic kind of stuff. I mean myths in the sense that they're dumb and they're bad and they're wrong, okay? So, um, so anyway, could somebody read, if you got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This was... One of my favorite preachers is a guy named John Stott, British guy who died maybe, I don't know, eight years ago. Fabulous preacher, fabulous expository preacher of the Bible. This was his favorite passage on preaching. Um, so can somebody just read um, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5? So there's a lot going on there, but tell me, what was Paul feeling as a preacher when he came to Corinth? How did he feel? What's that? Afraid. Much trembling. Not just afraid, but his like knees were shaking and knocking. It's like, like Paul, you've got to be kidding me. You're afraid, you know? Um, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So Paul, what Paul does is he says that that is not actually, he kind of like subverts what we would normally think. Like that would be a bad thing. That would make you less effective. That would make you less confident. Uh, Paul actually turns that into a good thing. He says my weakness and fear and much trembling was actually a good thing. And why was it a good thing, according to that text? Why did it turn into a good thing? Yeah. Because he was not stressed. I'm sorry? Yeah. He couldn't trust in himself. He had to trust in the power of the Spirit. So it, he was, threw him, he, it threw him onto the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's like, I don't have what it takes. Um, I, I don't know how to do this. Or I'm not going to do it right. Or I'm not going to get the results I want. So, um, so that's the first myth, is that you should not be nervous or afraid. Um, the second thing, second myth is you must be an expert Bible scholar. Now let me just say, you should be growing and increasing in your knowledge of the Word of God and how to handle it. So learn all you can. So I, I'm all for that. But the, the idea that I am going to sit up here and dispense knowledge to you people that you know not yet, and I'm going to share with you amazing truths that like, whoa, I never heard that before. Oh, whoa, wow, where did that come from? Oh, that is amazing. That, get out of your head. Think of yourself more like a, well, I'll get into this in a minute, but a guide at a museum. And what does a guide at a museum do? Say it's a she. 
All she does is she just shows people the paintings so that they can see it for themselves. That's really your role as a preacher. So the, one of the biggest compliments I've ever got as a preacher in the last three years has been someone who came up to me and said, um, you help us, you, I feel like you're taking us and walking us through the text and we're discovering it together. That is like, ah, oh, that's what I want. Rather than me kind of like just dispensing knowledge, I want to have enough respect for my hearers so we are discovering the text together. That's your ultimate goal as a preacher. So not that they're just getting amazing things from you, but they're getting amazing things from the text. Um, and we could do a whole session on how to do that, but uh, let me just share with you one quote. So I have a mentor, preaching mentor named Daryl Johnson. He's out in Vancouver, British Columbia. Fabulous preacher. Um, he listens to my sermons and gives me free coaching, which I, I love. But here's what Daryl says. Um, expository preaching. And by the way, expository preaching is a broad term. There's, there's just not one way to do expository preaching. But it's basically, expository preaching is somehow... Uh, walking through a biblical text so and you're drawing the meaning out of the text um, so the text is what the biblical text is what has the final word not me or my opinion or what I'm bringing to the text I'm trying to unfold what's already in there that's what we mean by expository preaching and there's different ways to do that some people go like line by line. Some people go sort of more getting the big picture. Some people pick out certain facets of the text. But anyway, so he says uh, expository preaching is not about getting a message out of the text. It is about inviting people into the text so the text can do what only the Holy Spirit can do. The preacher's role is not that of an expert, but that of a guide as at an art exposition pointing to, calling attention to the essential aspects of the reality about which the text is speaking. As the preacher does this, something happens. The preacher and the congregation begin to participate in what the risen Jesus, through the Spirit, is doing in and with the text. Um, <clears throat> oh, you got one? So, yeah, just that idea of helping think of yourself of helping people discover what the Lord has taught you about this text bring them into it think of it like you're inviting them into your living room or you're inviting them into an art gallery or a, a little room in an art gallery and you love these paintings and you've been studying these paintings so Help them see it for themselves. Help them to see the detail for themselves. Help them to see the way Rembrandt uses light or help them see the way Caravaggio does this, you know. So that's really your goal as a preacher. Um, and I think it makes preaching way more fun. Um, and it, it puts less pressure on us because it's not about my amazing insights. It's about just look, look at this. What do you see? What do you notice here? And look at this verse. And uh, so... Um, that's the second. 
myth is you must be an expert Bible scholar. The third one is you are incredibly important. Now, let me just pause and say there's another truth to this, and that is you are important. Otherwise, God could have just written his word up in the sky, and he could have just downloaded it into people's brains. And I mean, he could have done something else, but instead he chooses flawed human beings, and he says, you are going to proclaim my word. You are going to proclaim my good news. It's slow. It's inefficient. It's um, messy. And yet, God says, I want to work through you. But at the same time, I say, you're not incredibly important. Okay? So take a little pressure off yourself. I love Augustine here. So he had this image. Um, here's some quotes from him. I am the servant, the bringer of the food, not the master of the house. I lay, he's talking to his people. I lay out before you that from which I also draw my life. So I love that. So think you're working in a kitchen. You're, you're, um, you're the waiter. You're the waitress. You got this master chef who's made this food put all the ingredients together, thought of the recipe. Now, you might help with maybe a little bit with the presentation. So you may put it you know, a certain way on the plate, and then you deliver it. But you're not the chef. You didn't make it. You're just delivering it. Um, that makes your role important, but it's not near as important as the chef. Um, so people should walk away from your servant and say, my compliments to the chef. Oh, I just thought of that. That would be a good goal to get, you know. <laughs> I like that. I really like that. Write that down. Madeline, write that down. <laughs> write that down, Madeline, right now. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> here's another quote. So he loved this image. He loved this image of, I'm just a waiter. And this is at another point in another sermon. He said, when I explain these things to you, I am waiting table on Christ. You, when you listen quietly, are reclining at table. When I'm preaching, I am standing and waiting on table on you. I love that. I'm just, I'm just delivering the food. This is the food that the Lord made for me, and he made it for you, and I'm just going to bring it. So Augustine said, therefore, the preacher should be a person of prayer before he is a speaker of words. Before he uses his tongue... He should raise his parched soul to God that he may gush forth what he has, has drunk in and pour out what has filled him up. I love that. He should raise his parched soul to God that he may gush, gush forth what he has drunk in and poured out what has filled him up. Um, by the way, I, so this on sabbatical, I did a lot of reading on Augustine as a preacher and I just, I just love him so much. So he's one of the guys I want to meet in heaven first, you know, give a big hug to St. Gus. Um, so um, he, had this, he had this amazing way of um, concluding his sermons that you should never do. So he would just say, um, well, I guess I've been talking long enough, so I'm going to stop. So that was one of his conclusions. He was preaching in Africa, North Africa, in the hot sun, crowded cathedral. He would sit, and he would speak without notes for like an hour. People would dictate it. One of his sermons, he said, well, I can tell by the stench in the room that you have been listening and sweating with me long enough, so I think I'll end. So, boom, that was the end of the sermon. Uh, one time, he, was, he, was, he prepared to preach on a certain psalm, and the lector got up and read this wrong psalm. 
So we have the dictated, well, that was not the psalm the lector was supposed to read today, but since he read that psalm, I'll go ahead and preach on that. So anyway, if you're that brilliant, you can do that. But, um, but anyway, I love Augustine. So, um, so just a couple things about you as a preacher, your soul, when you stand up to preach or to teach, you know, um, I could say a lot more about that, but that's just a, a couple things that are on my heart these days. Um, let, me, let me run through the next section, and then we'll stop and ask questions. You can have a, ask any questions. So, so here's four key concepts of expository preaching, and there's more, but let me just focus on four things. Um, so the first thing is love and trust your biblical text. Um, so let's say you have a passage. Let's say you have 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. When we use the word text as Christians, we use it the way everybody else uses a text. You know, so it could be Shakespeare. It could be, um, it could be um, uh, Jane Austen. It could be, uh, you know, it could be ancient Babylonian creation myths, you know. But we also use it differently because we believe it's God who has given us this text and Christ who is speaking his word through the biblical text. Um, so that's different. That's really different. Um, and so sometimes when I hear, when I go to these preaching conferences and stuff, they talk about the text. It's like it's, it's, like it's just a words on a page. It's not. Um, Augustine said, he was talking about the Old Testament, but I think it applies to all of the Bible. He said, Christ meets and refreshes me everywhere on the pages of that book. So that's how we read the Bible as Christians. And that's how Jesus told us to read the Bible. In uh, Luke 24, after the walk to Emmaus, he said, um, all of scripture is pointing to me. It's, it's all about me. The, the story is about me, the law and the prophets. You'll, you'll find me in there. And so... We are being, we are meeting and being refreshed by Jesus everywhere in the biblical text. So you have your text and I would say, love it. First, love it. Act like this is a new boyfriend or girlfriend and you are infatuated. It's like, Oh my gosh, I want to know everything about you. Tell me about yourself, you know? Um, oh, and why do you feel that way? And why do you think that way? And um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux talked about, uh, he's got a whole, he's got 84 sermons on the Song of Songs. Um, and he talks about the kiss of God, that God kisses us, you know? And it's, it's like, as Bishop Todd would say, uh, it's kind of romantic, isn't it? You know, yes, it is. It's very romantic because the Lord wants to kiss us, you know, and, and through his word. And so, um, so I would say love the biblical text. Your text, your text has logic. It has structure. Uh, it's, if it's a narrative, Hebrew narrative is brilliant. There's so much going on with Hebrew, Hebrew narrative. You're reading an Old Testament story. Like, let's say, for instance, you're reading um, David's adultery with Bathsheba. You're reading that whole story. There's so much going on there that's so cool. So just 
Read it over and over again. Look for what's going on. Look for key words. Um, just love it because you're going to find something in there. Here, here's an example so, that I never noticed. It was actually a, a Jewish Bible scholar that helped me see this. So the word uh, sent is used over and over again. So it's David sent for Uriah. David sent for Bathsheba. David saw Bathsheba on the roof. He sent for her. David sent for Uriah. David sent this. David sent that. David sent somebody here. So it's all like David is in, in charge. And then, um, and then the plot all of a sudden twists. There's like this narrative twist where it says, uh, the Lord sent Uriah to David. And you see that word sent, and it's like, bam! It's like, now David's not doing the sending. David is, the Lord is sending somebody to David. Um, it's just such an incredible emotional twist in the story. So your text, um, again, your text has a logic. It has a structure. It's, it's designed that way. Um, your text has feelings. What, is the, what are the feelings in your text? Um, what is the emotion in your text? What does God want me to feel in this text? Your text may have difficult things. It's like, ask questions about like that. Oh, text, why are you saying this this way? Why does it say this instead of this? Why did you leave this out? Have this conversation. It's like, it's like you're, here's another analogy. It's like you're getting to know somebody from a different culture. It's like, why do you think this way? And why do you feel this way? And why do you do things that way? And why does your group do things that way? And so you're learning to love your text and let it speak to you on its terms. Or as we would say as Christians, you're letting Jesus speak to you on his terms through this biblical text. Um, the second thing is, is to trust your text, your biblical text. Um, I have grown in the last um, three years, I've grown more and more convinced in the veracity, the truthfulness, and the um, power of, um, and the relevance of the biblical text. So sort of a breaking point for me was preaching a sermon on um, Obadiah. So Obadiah, the uh, little one chapter minor prophet. We did a minor prophet series a couple years ago. Did you do one in that series? Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, it was right before. Zechariah, the whole book. Yeah. So Obadiah is about the judgment, God's judgment on the Edomites. That's, that's pretty much it. And I'm like, the first time I read this, I go, this is, this is terrible. I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> it's like, what a horrible text. Why did I assign myself this? Um, but you know, the more I got into it, and the more I studied the historical context, and the more I just listened to the text, uh, the Holy Spirit speaking through the text, reading, reading it over and over again, seeing the structure of it, First of all, it's really brilliant. It's really brilliant, just the narrative structure of it. There's just a lot going on that's really brilliant. Uh, and I also preach on the book of Amos, and that's even more brilliant. Just as literature, it's just brilliant. It's so cool what's going on there as a literary structure. So, um, but 
I realized this is so powerful because it's all about the book of uh, Obadiah is all about self-deception. Uh, when we think we're pride happens when we think we're moving up. We think we're like soaring high when actually we're plummeting and we don't even know it. And that's what the book of Obadiah is all about. It's all about this human propensity towards self-deception. Uh, and it's also not only just individually, but as a group, group self-deception. So once I saw that in the text, it's like, oh my gosh, don't we all struggle with this? I mean, I've lived long enough to know just the profound self-deception I've been at times, in certain times in my life, when I thought I was in a certain place, when I thought I was at this level, but I was really at this level, uh, when I thought I was being really loving, when I really was really way more about me than anybody else, you know. Um, so um, anyway, your text has relevance to people today. And your job when you, as you study it and read it and engage with it is to, is to just find that, to stay with it, to talk to it, to have this conversation with it, to love it, to study it, um, to read it, to meditate on it until that cracks open to you. And, um, and it will. It will, eventually. Um, so that's my first thing about expositional preaching. Uh, second thing is to find and write your big idea. Um, and Bishop Stewart was talking about that a little bit last week, and I want to I just dive a little bit deeper into that. So your big idea is one thing that you want to say to your people based on this biblical text for this day. It could be something different a year from now. Um, it could be something different if you're speaking to a different group of people. But this is the one thing you want to say from this biblical text for your people for today. Very contextualized and very present to this moment. And it comes from your biblical text. Now there are, there are some, there's sort of a little debate going on now in the evangelical preaching community is like, is the big idea a valid concept? Is it reductionistic? Is it this or is it that? And, that, um, and I think there's a case to be made for some of that. Like Augustine believe that every text has multiple meanings, you know? Um, it's like, it could mean a hundred different things. Um, but I find this concept enormously helpful for focusing yourself, and I find it of great service to your people. So your people walk away knowing, okay, I, there's not a thousand things I need to think about today, it's just really one thing. Keeps it really simple. So it makes it very accessible. And I think it makes it accessible to believers. And I also think it makes it really accessible to non-believers who are going to, might hear your message. So, so I think the big idea is a really good and helpful concept. So every big idea has two parts. It has a subject and a complement. The subject is, answers this question. What am I talking about? What is my subject? Um, so is your subject prayer? Is your subject Satan? Is your subject Jesus' death? Uh, is your subject hope? If you don't know what your subject is, your people are not going to know what your subject is. They'll get lost. So, and then your compliment is, what am I saying 
about my subject today for this group of people. Again, um, not every preacher does this, but I, again, I find it really helpful and clarifying um, in focusing my, my message. So we're going to look at a couple case studies in just a minute, and you're going to tell me what the preacher's big idea is, what the subject and what the compliment is. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, it's also present tense. You're not going to say, oh, my big idea for today, people, is that uh, the Edomites are going down, okay? <laughs> because they're creeps. So <laughs> write that down, Madeline, write that down. Um, um, <laughs> I thought you wanted to be the drudge. Um, <laughs> so it's like, oh, that's great. What does that have to do with my life today when my, I'm unemployed and um, um, my marriage is on the brinks and my 13-year-old son's acting up, you know? I need something to hold on to. So it's like something today. It could be something like, um, let's use our Obadiah example. Um, the gospel frees us from the bondage of self-deception, you know? So, boom. It's based on the text. It's, um, it's present tense, and it's short. That's another thing. And it's applicational. I hate that word, but it's actually a word. So, um, it is a word. I looked it up. So, it's applicationable. Applicationable. I don't think that's a word, but it's applicational, which means I can apply this big idea. This big idea is moving people towards where I want them to go by the time this sermon is over, or by the time this teaching is over. Um, so there's, there's like a seed of application in it already. It's not just some abstract thought. It's moving people. Um, so back to Augustine again. One more thing about Augustine. So he, he, was a, he was trained as a rhetorician. That's before he became a believer in Jesus. He was uh, trained as a rhetorician. He wanted to be a really amazing rhetorician. Um, and he realized how much pride and arrogance was wrapped up in that. But he, he learned from his uh, mentor, the guy that he loved as a rhetorician, Cicero, he learned three aspects to every form of communication, that it must instruct, uh, it must delight, and it must persuade. Um, let me just talk about that for a little bit. So it's got to instruct, it's got to shed light, it's got to share knowledge. Um, we've been talking about the biblical text, how you're inviting people into the text. It should instruct. It should also delight. It should be fun to listen to, you know? Um, boring preaching is not uh, a virtue, a goal. So again, you don't have to, it's, I'm not talking about being entertaining. I'm not talking about being funny. Some people are more funny than others. Some people are just more have a different, more energetic delivery. That's not really the point. The point is, is that you should be delighted by it and you should want others to see the delight in this biblical text. Um, and then be creative as God gives you creativity and how you present it. But the third thing Augustine said was that it, well, Cicero said that it should persuade, that it should change people's minds. Augustine actually modified Cicero's persuade and he used the word move. It should move people. And he meant by that, 
literally that it should move them in a certain direction, but he also, Augustine was sort of the, uh, he was really big on our, what we love. You are what you love, you know, um, and you will go to what you love. So he said it should stir up desire in people to want to do what God wants them to do. Um, so it doesn't, shouldn't just tell them what to do, like, or what not to do, like you should avoid sexual immorality. That's true. That's good. But why? Why? What's beautiful? What is so good about God's vision for sexuality that I want that, I desire that, I yearn for that? Um, that was Augustine. Give me a man who yearns. Give me a man who desires. If I speak to a cold man, he has no idea what I'm talking about. I'm paraphrasing one of his sermons. If I speak to a cold man, he has no idea what I'm talking about. But if I speak to someone who yearns, someone who longs, he's going to get what I'm saying. So the, we wanna, the goal is to just kind of inflame people's desire to want that. Um, and I, I think... I think you hear that in the preaching at Res, um, in a way that, you know, we're, we're not like the most amazing preaching team in the whole world, but I think that's one of our strengths, is that we, we really want people to desire what God wants them to desire. Um, so, so that whole idea of moving people, the big idea, my point is, getting back to my point, I got off track, my point is, is that the, in the big idea should be this seed of either desire or moving people in a certain direction. Um, so again, we'll look at some examples um, so you can see this. The third thing is to get, and that's a passive word and verb intentionally, get gripped by the text's urgency. And you heard that a lot from uh, Bishop Stewart last week, so I won't say a lot about that, but we'll also look at a couple examples of, a couple more examples. Um, but a big idea should grip you. Um, it should grip you and it should, you should want it to grip your people. So, um, for instance, um, yeah, well, just first of all, so ideas, ideas are important. Ideas are life or death, you know? Ideas are not just cerebral things. They also have implications for the heart, for life. Um, and there should be an urgency about that. Like self-deception, I use that, like the gospel can set you free from self-deception. De um, self-deception self can kill you. Self-deception can ruin your life. Self-deception can send you to hell, you know? Um, self-deception can ruin your relationships. That's not just some abstract idea that has no bearing on life. It's, that's life. It's life or death. Um, so... I want that to grip me, and, and I want the Lord to get a hold of me in that, and then I want to somehow um, communicate that. And again, uh, I'll say this over and over again, you, you don't have to do it exactly the way somebody else does it. You don't have to do it the way I do it. You don't have to do it the way Bishop Stewart does it. The Lord wants to use you through your personality and through your voice and through your way of speaking. That's really important. You don't have to try to be somebody else when you preach or when you teach, the Lord wants to work through you, but just that sense of that you're gripped by the urgency of what you're gonna talk about. And you communicate that somehow. So again, we'll look at a couple examples. So the fourth thing is to, 
is to use the ladder of abstraction. So um, I think I talked about this last time you guys were here, but um, so there's actually a thing from communication theory, some guy in the 1930s developed this, this concept of the ladder of abstraction, which is an abstract idea, but so let me explain it to you. So, so up at the top right, um, at the top of the ladder right, abstract concept. And then down at the bottom of the ladder right, concrete examples. So good communicators, whether they're uh, speakers or novelists, or um, you especially see it in journalists, know how to move up and down the ladder of abstraction. So if you're talking about um, human trafficking, that is abstract, and it's really important. So one's not better than the other, they're both important. Human trafficking is an abstract concept, um, and it's, it's bad, you know, it's, it's really bad, but what does that mean? So a good journalist will say, maybe start, let's say she starts her story with um, a 21-year-old woman who lives in Phnom Penh who thought she was applying for a job to be a seamstress and she wound up being kidnapped and now she's caught, was caught in this web of trafficking. And her name is Fun, you know? Um, and so now you have a concrete example. So then, then the journalist will go back and, and talk about this big abstract concept and how big it is and how broad it is. And then she'll go down the ladder of abstraction again. So good communicators, you'll notice they go up and down the ladder of abstraction. And I think you'll see that all um, in all the preachers at res. Um, I have a general rule of thumb that you should come down the ladder of abstraction like every three minutes. That's not science, that's not biblical, you know, but it just seems to, my preaching for 27 years, it seems like um, your listeners need concrete content about that often. And so when we're talking about something concrete, it could be a story, it could be an image, it could be a metaphor, it could be a statistic. If you like stats, some people around this table probably really like stats. No, oh, man. Wow. Well, let's do a whole workshop on misusing stats in sermons. Just don't use Barna, right? <laughs> um, Chad's got to think about that and personality tests. So um, anyway. Um, yeah, so it could be something fairly quick. Um, it could be something like something you're referring you know when the snow, you, you know when the snow falls and it rests on the trees and just everything just looks so white and clean and fresh and there's like no dirt. That's what the Lord wants to do inside of you, or something like that. <laughs> that was a little corny, but you get my point. So, um, so use the ladder of abstraction. It's your friend. Um, but more than anything, it's a friend for your hearers because it will really help them um, see and feel and sense what the abstract concepts you're talking about. Um, so just ask the question, how are you moving up and down the ladder of abstraction? So let me stop there before we look at a couple of examples. Um, any questions about anything you've heard today or would have liked to have heard today? 
or <laughs> wish you hadn't heard today. <laughs> You're fired. You're fired. <laughs> Trademark that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Probably contagious too. I mean, haven't they done some kind of brain research on that where it's like the emotion is like, come on, come on, come on, come on. PhD. Um, no, um, yeah, I think, um, no, that's a really good point. So how do you, what helps you get to that point, Chad, whether it's a, a lecture or a sermon, what helps you get to that point where it, it feels like it's really alive and passionate inside you? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like the word lingering. Lingering with your biblical text, lingering with Jesus in the text, you know, sort of soaking in it, marinating in it. That's a concrete example of an abstract concept, marinating. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. It takes, it does take time. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 10 minutes is really hard. So I would just say for all of your sermons, don't try to do too much. Don't try to like make this, because we get almost 30 minutes on Sunday morning. So um, don't try to do too much. Just keep it really simple. Just one thing, one thing, one idea. You don't have to go through every single word. You don't have to explain every phrase. Because um, you're just not going to be able to do that in 10 minutes. So you might just zero in on, on one main thing, you know. Um, so, but your original question was how long do you linger? About yeah, seven weeks before. Yeah, well, Raz is so weird. So I was in Long Island, I was preaching 45 Sundays out of the year. Um, and it's just like boom, 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 boom. You just get done and then you got to do another one. Um, and uh, so I didn't have as much time, but now, like at Res, it's awesome because I only preach like every four weeks. So I'll start like four weeks. Uh, I'll just start reading it. Um, so I'm preaching this Sunday on John 2, 
which I actually preached before at Emmanuel, and I wasn't supposed to preach it but to this Sunday, but Archbishop Kwashi can't show up, probably not. So um, anyway, I probably read John 2, 2, 1 through 11. I probably read it, I don't know, 50, 60 times. Just read it. I didn't like do some massive study or massive journaling thing. I would just read it slowly, maybe spend five minutes, um, read it meditatively, read it prayerfully. Um, probably did that maybe, I don't know, two, three times a day. Again, I'm, I'm only spending 10 or 15 minutes a day. So, but I'm, things are percolating. I'm feeling it and thinking it through it. I'm seeing the key words. I'm, I used to go to the commentaries earlier um, now I go to them later, and sometimes I don't even need them. Um, but, I mean, I've been doing this for 27 years, so it's, um, but I do find the commentaries helpful, because they do, because there's people like a guy that spent his whole life, spent 50 years studying the Gospel of John, and to think I have nothing to learn from him, you know, he's probably got a lot to teach me. I just try to pick good ones that are insightful ones so so they they can have some really helpful things um just trying to think uh what yeah like i didn't know like i would learn like from a commentary i learned that wine in the bible is often a symbol of god's presence and joy and that in the minor prophets there are promises of a day when the hills will drip with sweet wine you know I suppose I could have done maybe a word search and found that, but that was really helpful. I didn't know that. That's a really helpful point as I work on the sermon. So I don't know if that helps answer your question. Yeah. Yeah, I would say uh, just for all of you with your 10-minute sermon, just don't try to keep it really simple, really focused on one thing. <clears throat> yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, ideas? Yeah. Certain questions that you're asking yourself, especially if it's a congregation that you're not regularly with. Um, yeah. Maybe the future. How do you determine what those answers were? Yeah, that's a really that's a good question. Um, well, most of it, <clears throat> most of it comes from the, most of the big idea itself comes from the biblical text. So. Right, but if there if there are many different directions you could go. Yeah. Yeah, true. And you don't know the congregation? Yeah. That's a little tougher, like at Emmanuel. I know them a little bit because I've probably preached up there eight or ten times, something like that. But, um, yeah. I mean, part of it is, is that I know that if I am preaching the Word of God faithfully, it's going to go a long way in just speaking to people's hearts because it's God's word, you know? Um, and it will speak in ways that I can't even conceive, you know? So, so as long as I'm faithful to that, I'm, it's going to go a long way. But how do you do it when you don't really know the congregation? Well, Lydia, let me put it this way. It's a bit of a crapshoot, so. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you don't really know. Um, I mean, obviously, I know res people a lot better, so it's a lot easier. So I'm thinking, you know, the bishop talked last week about his imaginary panel of people that he's preaching to. So that will shape my big idea 
you know. Um, I mean, part of it is because I've been in pastoral ministry for 27 years, I kind of have a good sense of how people are, what, generally speaking, their longings and needs and aches and hurts and questions and doubts and um, hopes and all that kind of stuff. So I do have kind of an intuitive sense of that built into my head after almost 30 years. It doesn't help you a whole lot, but, but it will eventually. Okay. So, uh, yeah, sorry, I can't give you a better answer. Good question, though. <clears throat> Anybody else? Rebuttals. 30-second rebuttals. All right. Um, <clears throat> okay, so let's look at a couple examples. One is by John Ortberg. And um, let me read Ephesians 4.15 for you, because that was the main text he was talking about. So Ephesians 4.15 says, um, da, 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 here it is. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Um, so let's read, this is basically like the first four minutes of his sermon. Um, let's read it. Maybe just, um, we'll start with Paul and we'll go around this way and just read a couple paragraphs at a time till we're done, okay? You go back to the shop and you say, why didn't you tell me? The technician replies, well, I didn't want you to feel bad. Plus, to be honest, I was afraid you might get upset with me. I want this to be a safe place for you to feel loved and accepted. You'd be curious. You'd say, I didn't come here for a little fantasy-based ego boost. When it comes to my car, I want the truth. Or imagine. love to hear about 
Go ahead and read this. Just his kind of his transition into the text. Okay, so then he began, he developed this. So his first point was our pattern of avoiding the truth, then our habit of forgetting God, and then our desperate need for hearing the truth spoken in love. That was basically his outline. So um, write down what you think is the big idea. So just go ahead and write it down before you speak it out loud. There's not one absolutely perfect answer, but it can be more simple than you think, so. Got a couple more writers. Okay, Peter, what do you think? Okay, it's good. Anybody else? Let's get the gist of it. Yep. Anybody else? Okay, good, yep. Okay, it's good. Mark, you got something? <laughs> Is that what you put? Yeah. Yeah, you can expand. That is, um, I think that's the essence of his, I think you're all right. You all got it. You all, and the reason why you all got it is because it's clear, you know. And I would think, if I could get in John Ortberg's head, I would think he's saying, the big idea is we need truth. Boom. That's it. You need the truth. Or you can't handle the truth, maybe. You can't handle the truth! (laughs) 
<laughs> Top 10 ever. Anyway, uh, enough of that. <clears throat> so. <laughs> yeah. Did you? It's awesome. Yeah, I think it's, it's sometimes we overthink the big idea. Sometimes we, we try to make it too complicated. And it's just really simple. It, it might be we need the truth because we don't often get it, or we need the truth because it'll set us free, or something like that. But he's basically saying we need the truth, and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. So we should seek the truth. Something like that. Um, but he does use that phrase in each of the illustrations. He ends the, his little um, paragraph the same way. Um, when it comes to my car, I want the truth. When it comes to my body, I want the truth. So um, he kind of gets that repetition going. I want the truth. We want the truth. Deep down, we really want the truth. Um, but sometimes people don't give it to us. Um, so next question is, what's, what's the, I, I call this the WTM test. Why does this matter test? Why does this matter? Um, so, real simply, <clears throat> why does it matter? Uh, according to John Ortberg, not according to you. So, don't really care what you think right now. I don't care what John Ortberg thinks, so, um, or what I think. So, according to John Ortberg and the, the biblical text, why does this matter? Because you might die. You might die. It's a matter of life or death, like with the car, with the jelly donuts. Yeah. Um, any other way to say that? Yeah, that's another, that's another great way of saying it. Mm -hmm. Truth protects us. Yep. Um, on the urgency scale, so let's say there's a scale of like one to five, where the urgency five is the urgency is really clear. One, it's really fuzzy and seems like Interesting, but not that important. Not like I'm gripped by it. How do you feel John did on the urgency scale? The WTM scale. <clears throat> Some numbers? No, five. Five. Four? Hey, are you guys subcommitting this? <laughs> 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 Research has shown science reveals to us. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is so good. Wow. You're so helpful to have around. We're going to miss you. <laughs> no, that's, that's true. That's good. Can I tell you? Oh, excuse me. A solid five. He's going with the extreme. He's an extreme guy. Mark? I, I think I would say four, but here's why. Okay. Yeah, we're, room for some improvement. Because I'm going to I'm gonna uh, email John and tell him. Well, I think he, he did a really good job of establishing urgency, but because it's fuzzy, it didn't feel as serious. Hmm. You 
you think it lost some of his gravitas with the yeah. humor. I mean, I don't think it was necessarily the wrong way to go because of that. Yeah. I mean, it, like, it gets your defenses down. Yeah. It's probably the right way to go with this topic and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's a really good point. And you might have different, you all might have different styles and different ways of using humor or whatever. So he's the kind of preacher, his intensity level, urgency level will actually build as the sermon goes on. So he will use a lot of humor. And then, but the urgency, especially like, I should show you one of his um, conclusions uh, to his sermon on the, the, the guys in the fire, the Daniel in the fiery furnace. I mean, man, that is intense and urgent and just like grips you. But so he, he builds slowly to that. Somebody like Bishop Stewart, bam, starts out of the gate, you know, first three minutes. If you don't nail that. Um, so that is generally the way we try to do it here at Res. But there are different ways to ramp that up. But that's a really good point. It's good. So... Um, yeah, any other thoughts on the urgency in this, which you liked or didn't like? Okay, let's do the ladder of abstraction. So up at the top, list the abstract concept he's talking about, and then give concrete examples. This is basically one abstract concept. So what's the abstract concept? Truth. Truth. Yeah. That's basically, it's basically that simple. Truth. Um, um, I mean, you could say more about that, like why we need the truth, but basically the, the concept is the truth. Um, and then concrete examples he gives. Car mechanic, doctor, church, yeah. So now he's going to he's going to get into more. He starts with a lot of concrete examples, um, and. Um, yes. Yeah. That's a really good point, Chad. Yeah, he's, he starts with the concrete, goes up to the abstract, starts with the concrete, goes up to the abstract. Yeah. He's doing it every 30 seconds, yeah. Well, we don't have the whole sermon, though, okay? So, 
And you don't want to give too many abstract concepts because then people are sort of like jumping from image to image to image, you know, it's like metaphor to metaphor to metaphor. So anyway, um, yeah, good, good points. Yeah, I'm sorry, somebody say something? Oh, okay, yeah. Any other thoughts? Oh, and then notice also the way he, notice the way he, he just very, I think it's pretty smooth. He just like, boom, goes, transitions into the biblical text. When he was writing to it, that had truth problems. So he's established, we have truth problems. We have a truth problem here, people. Well, look in this text. There was people that had truth problems back then. Let's take a look at this, see what it has to say. Um, so what you want to do is think through, so how am I going to like transition now into the biblical text? And it can be really short. Notice how short it was. It was like one or two sentences. Um, so you don't have to belabor that point. But I think if this is a, something that you will definitely want to write out, write this down, because this is an important transition. So I've gone, over 27 years, I've gone back and forth and back and forth on how much of my sermon I write. Um, so I was writing every single word. Out on Long Island, Long Island, I was writing every word. I edited it, and I made manuscripts available for people after the service. So, and we'd always have like 30 or 40 people pick up a manuscript um, because it was a incredibly academic community. There's a lot of PhD professors in the church. There was a lot of grad students. I mean, it was really intense. So they really loved that academic stuff. Um, and then lately, so I've been kind of going back and forth. And the, the sermon I did at Emmanuel, I didn't write, I just wrote like detailed notes. And I noticed it got kind of long and loquacious at points. So quite loquacious. Um, so, um, so I'm actually preaching the sermon again at Res, and I, I wrote, especially the introduction and the transition, I wrote every word, and then the conclusion, I wrote every word. Um, and then I trimmed, like, the points a lot. So, um, so it was really nice to have another crack at it. Um, cleared away some clutter. I had a great Dallas Willard quote in there that I loved about the discipline of celebration, cut it. It was painful. It's like, oh, that was like my, my whole sermon felt like it was built around that quote. And it made me sound really smart. I mean, it was just as a philosophy professor from USC, you know, not just a Christian author. So, um, and there's philosophy professors at Emmanuel. So anyway, I felt really smart using that quote, but I just, just didn't fit. Um, so I don't know how I got off on that, but, um, Trimming, trimming, writing, trimming. So let's look at the next one. This is by a fellow named Matt Woodley. Okay? So we're going to use one of my sermons. That could use some improvement, by the way. A little bit of improvement. Chad, it's your turn to read. You may have heard this sermon before, people, some of you. Thank you. 
That's it. And then the outline goes, Jesus, our ultimate zone of hospitality. The church, a zone of hospitality for Jesus' sake. This is a Sanctity of Life sermon. So who do we welcome for Jesus' sake? We welcome people, period. We welcome children, born and unborn. We welcome expected mothers and fathers. We welcome people who have participated in an abortion. And then I concluded by inviting people into Jesus' invitation. A beautiful invitation of being welcomed by him. So, um, again, just write down what you think the big idea is. Christy, you got it? It's good. Yep. Anybody else? Okay. Good. Yep. It's good. Yeah. I think you got it. Yeah. I'd give myself a five for clarity but I'd give myself a three for urgency, okay? So tell me, um, I think it was fairly urgent, but I, do, I think I needed another sentence or two to um, develop the sense of why this matters to us today. So help me out here. 
if you were sermon coaching me, what would you say, what would you add, um, what would you add to just ramp up the urgency? Help me, oh class. Teach me, my mentors, my muses, my... <laughs> <laughs> my sparring partners, my underlings. <laughs> Do it with great humility, with fear and trembling, but please help me. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. I like that. Yeah, I think you got you, you have a line in there about the, the boys who are the rejects of our society who spend you know maybe cast a little bit more of a picture of what it would be like mm. kids without homes like this. What would it what would it be like to like to grow up right across from ah, living in this? That's really good. Who, who fail? Like what happens to us as the church when we are not hospitable? Yeah, right. What? It's not negative just to them. Yeah, right, right. That's really good. Yeah, Madeline, you're writing this down, right? So I can, next time I preach this. <laughs> uh, scribe. <laughs> um, anybody, anybody else have any thoughts? I like that possibly... I like all, real, all, they're all really good ideas. Um, Peter, I love that idea of um, maybe coming back to that and just saying, don't you long to be at a place like that? Wouldn't you feel so welcome? Can you imagine yourself sitting down at Kay and Willis's table and the, the sense of hospitality and love you would feel? And um, don't you think people that don't know the Lord or whatever want that as well? Um, so anyway, something like that could be, I, I love that idea of desire um, and maybe picking up on that and coming back to that. That would be very Augustinian as well, you know, appealing to people's desire. But yeah, those are all really good ideas. Um, anything else on that? Thanks for helping me out. Um, see, I told you I'm, I love learning about preaching and every Actually, every sermon I preach gives me an opportunity to learn new things. Um, I just feel like I'm just constantly learning and soaking things in and trying new things. And, um, and obviously, so what's the abstract? It's pretty obvious the abstract concept is hospitality. Remember, that's a great concept. It's wonderful, but it's abstract. Um, and um, so give some concrete examples. So I did that with Willis and Kay and Leon and Nancy, obviously, are the concrete examples. Um, and then notice the transition. Again, um, just how simple it can be from going from um, something concrete like that um, to the biblical text. 
All this radical hospitality begins with Jesus. Look with me in our gospel reading for this morning, a simple but beautiful passage from, you'll notice Jesus's open-hearted, open-armed, huge-hearted welcome that begins in verse 28. Boom, then we're into the text. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, that's good. thanks for noticing that. That's something I learned from Daryl Johnson and another guy named Earl Palmer, um, who are these great expositional preachers from the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, that's, they will do that. It's like, look with me. What is it, do you notice what it says here? Um, you know, and, and what does he say next? And I mean, you don't have to do that all the time, but just every once in a while, your, your and what you're doing as you do that is you're showing people how to read the Bible for themselves. So they go away and they think, oh, I could never do that. That's great. But I could never read the Bible with that much insight, all those insights and the Greek and the Hebrew and blah, blah, blah. I could just never do that. It's like, yeah, you can. Just read and notice, notice, observe. Um, it's, some of it's not rocket science. Um, so anyway, yeah. Great question. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Father Kevin Miller and I were talking about that just a couple weeks ago in our geeky preaching conversation. So, um, and um, I think we both agree that most of your illustrations, like just general rule of thumb, like 90% should be positive. Um, two reasons for that. Although negatives are not always bad, but positives, two reasons. Number one is um, it just gives your people a vision of what they can do or should do or could you're helping them see themselves like let's say you're, you're talking about hospitality to give examples of people that are doing it right is way better vision for me to start thinking about and stirring some desire for how I can do it right it's like well I can't be Willis and Kay but oh I love that how can I do that in my life um, so when you give a negative example like let's say I started with I knew this couple named the Doozlers and Barnum, and man, were they losers. They were so <laughs> inhospitable. I'd go to their house, and they would spit on my shoes, and they would not serve me food, and they'd give me cold, day-old coffee, and oh, man, that was horrible. You know, I mean, yeah, don't be that person, okay? Be the other kind of person. So, um, so you're, doing, you're doing a couple things with that. First of all, it's just such a downer <laughs> and secondly it's people are going to think um especially if you preach regularly you know people are going to think is that the way my pastor thinks about people is that the way my pastor thinks about us um father brett is really good about this father brett is really great about and, and Bishop Stewart does this too, about um, trying to find positive ways that loving the congregation by affirming 
who they are and what they're doing. So, um, so that's important. So as a general rule of thumb, but the negative illustrations can be, they can be effective as like a wake-up call. Um, like let's say, for instance, you want to talk about um, heeding signs of warning or something like that. And you tell a story about somebody who was standing outside when a tornado was coming down and the wind is whipping around and they said, I'm not going inside, I'm gonna stay here. And the tornado picked them up and Bessie the cow and sent them the next county over and the guy broke his neck. <laughs> I don't know, you get the point. That's just like, um, it's a story of like, Folks, that's kind of like us. When I talked about self-deception, I used some negative illustrations because it seemed to be appropriate for that topic. Yeah, that's true, but they were so funny, you didn't feel like they were negative. They were outlandish, a little ridiculous, um, like nobody would ever do that. Yeah. Yeah, personal examples. Um, so, yeah, personal examples are probably a little easier to use because, especially in our culture, that up to a point, people view self-deprecation up to a point as a positive virtue. Um, so, um, doesn't always fly in other cultures, but in our culture, of course, if every time you give a negative illustration about yourself, it seems like you're almost being a little manipulative, like, let me tell you how bad I am, but I'm really showing you how good I am because I know how bad I am, you know? I'm so vulnerable, and uh, so, so it, if it gets to be too much, it gets to be kind of like that. Um, but yeah, that's, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as you, I just encourage people to find out like a diversity of illustrations, so. Some people overuse the personal illustration. Um, but there's a place for it. It's not bad. Um, I probably have almost every sermon I use at least one personal illustration. But the thing, like John Ortberg, uh, so this illustrations are not as hard as you think. I tell preachers that, especially when they struggle with illustrations, you have thousands of illustrations just stored in your brain. Thousands of them. Things you saw yesterday. Um, you know, a conversation you had yesterday, um, something from your childhood. Now, I mean, those are all personal, but, um, but personal doesn't necessarily have to be about you. So like I'm in Papua New Guinea and I see we're waiting for, to watch the birds of paradise. I mean, it's my story, but it's not about me. It's about the birds of paradise mm -hmm. and how you have to just pay such careful attention and you just have to wait and you have to wait and wait and then eventually they will show up, you know? But, um, I mean, it's kind of like, sometimes it's kind of like paying attention to the Holy Spirit, you know? The Holy Spirit doesn't, the wind blows where it wills, as Jesus says in John 3, you know, we're not in control. Um, I don't know, I'm just making that up, but um, that may not fit, may, might fit, but anyway, you have hundreds of illustrations in your head. Um, so, and John Ortberg, he just, like, everybody's been to the doctor, it's like, hmm, I wonder if my doctor did this. That'd be kind of funny. Let me try that. Everybody's been to a car mechanic. I was at my car mechanic last month. Well, what if my car mechanic said this? That would be kind of interesting. So 
Um, again, it doesn't always have to be some hilarious, fully developed story. It doesn't have to be some amazing quote from literature, you know. It can just be something really simple. Um, any other questions, thoughts? You guys wanna end early? Eight minutes? Will I get in trouble? What's that? Uh, that's true. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, 10 minutes, you're not going to be able to walk through everything in the text, even though I tried to pick really short texts. But even still, you're not going to walk through everything. So just try to get one big concept, stick with it, be simple, don't try to do too much. So think like a filmmaker. You can always have more scenes that you could have included and just put them mentally onto an extra DVD <laughs> that people can watch some other day, <laughs> but not today. <laughs> so. Don't show us your extra scenes. We don't need to know them all. So, uh, anything else? Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure, that's fine. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys don't, you're not getting graded anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> Spiritual points, ah, yeah. I think both the bishop and I are gonna be there, so. <laughs> she said we get spiritual points. We don't get graded, but we get spiritual points. No, for <laughs> just preaching a good message. Lydia's, Lydia's a little stuck in works righteousness. <laughs> ah, oh, whoa. 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 Oh, here's another thing, too, with illustrations. Often the text will have illustrations in it already, sort of hidden in it, embedded in it, that you can. What's that? Yeah. I mean, James is great about that. He's got great, he puts great illustrations in there, but there's implicit illustrations in the text. So sometimes that just, if you're looking for them, you might find them. But they're like the birds of paradise. They're very shy. And you just gotta sit there a long time until they come and put out fresh fruit.